You may have heard about the We Need a Button campaign. It's about holding the medical community accountable for sometimes poor behavior toward LGBTQ folks. Stigma, shaming, and discrimination happens too often at the hands of health professionals. In a recent article by Waxo, longtime Something Positive for Positive People sponsor, Eddie Moraz, a gay nurse practitioner, commented on We Need a Button and how even he, a healthcare professional, has experienced inappropriate behavior when he sought out medical care. In the article, he makes an interesting point. He says if somebody is saying inappropriate things to a gay patient, they're probably saying things to other patients as well. I don't know if y'all are aware, but if you follow me on Instagram, uh, yesterday actually, yesterday being the day before the release of this podcast episode, uh, there was an Instagram page that also has a Twitter page called at code blue memes and that is a community of nursing professionals nursing students nurse practitioners and i know this because as i wrote scrolled through the comments and looked at the descriptions of the people who were commenting everyone's a proud nurse and um, a proud nursing student or saving lives in their description on their pages and the post itself said something along the lines of, and I'll I'll put this in the show notes, I'll link to it, but um, the post itself said, you know, if I swipe right on anybody, best believe I'm checking those medicine cabinets. And that wasn't bad until you get to the description on the Instagram page where it says specifically Valcyclovir, and I forget the name of the other medication that was listed next to it, but it's used as a, it's an antipsychotic and it's used to treat schizophrenia. So as you scroll through the comments, you see people talking about, yeah, herpes, I'm running. If I ever get divorced and I have to start dating again and I hear herpes or I see valcyclovir in the medicine cabinets, I'm running. So this community of nurses was using very stigmatizing language and it's a community of nurses. So when I made an attempt to reconcile the damage that's been done privately with the person who manages the page, I was blocked and my comments were deleted as a result of being blocked. And I've had people who followed up after I was blocked and said that they were commenting and their posts were being deleted. So um, I noticed that they also changed the description of the post. The post is still available, but at the time it had 58 comments and 1,404 likes on it. And again, this is a community of medical care professionals um, behind this page. So once I got blocked on Instagram, I found their Twitter and I sent them a direct message and I also retweeted at them and said, hey, you know, rather than blocking me, I'd really like for us to um, reconcile this privately. Um, I don't know what the next steps would have been and what that would have looked like, but my plan was really just to be able to you know, invite them into the space of not using stigmatizing language, um, especially as nurses and medical professionals. So um, I got blocked there after addressing the person by first name, letting them know that, hey, I know who you are, so let's get together and work on this. So I was blocked, and now there's no way that I can contact them. So further action is going to be required. I've taken it to the HANDS Network, Herpes Activist Networking, to dismantle stigma, and this is something that we're currently working on to get in contact with this particular person's um, 
employer and we'll see what happens from there if it needs to go higher than that it needs to go higher than that but we got to hold people accountable and with the timing of this podcast episode with dr david melbranch um you'll hear another story regarding involving nurse practitioners and other medical professionals that really really let down a patient so with this all being said i mean this really stresses the importance of there being Something like the We Need a Button campaign, letting people know that there's empathetic care being provided by whatever institution it is that we frequent. My experience with Code Blue Memes confirms there are many nurses who are biased toward people and they stigmatize us publicly. You know, you can hope that doesn't translate inside a doctor's office or a hospital setting, but as the stories from the We Need a Button campaign show, they often do. So listen to this episode. Um, I will be following up in future episodes or future blog posts, and I'll do everything I can to make people aware of what can be done in order to reconcile this, um, how you can get involved, or if there's even any involvement needed. But this is the kind of thing that it's useful to me when I go off to STD Engage in November and I'm able to present in front of the people who can uh, help us with getting more information, more education to the people who are providing people with a diagnosis because this is just unacceptable. So enjoy this podcast episode. I hope it makes you think. I hope that it gives you some perspective and I hope that we're able to make some change because we, we got to do something, y'all. We really do. Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brand. Something Positive for Positive People features the experiences of people living with and or affected by sexually transmitted infections. We have Dr. David Melbranch here with us. Dr. David, what are your pronouns? He, his, and him. You also have some letters behind your name. Tell us what your credentials are. Yeah, I have a medical degree that I got from Emory University. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician, and I also have a master's in public health. Now, I want to just jump right into it. You shared a story that, to me, went viral, <laughs> but it caught my attention. We weren't uh, friends, but one of our mutual friends sent me the story and was like, hey, you should get this story on the podcast because this demonstrates a lot of uh, what we talk about here on the show, which is the interaction that a lot of people who are struggling with an STI diagnosis have with a medical professional. So I think that this shines light on a particular situation that a person could go through. And there's so many little nuggets in there as well that I'd like you to touch on. So I'll just go ahead and let you um, get into the story and then I'll just ask questions here and there in between. Yeah. So I guess um, I'll preface it by saying that uh, I'm a medical director uh, of student and employee health at a university down here, Morehouse School of Medicine. I also work at um, another, I also work at Morehouse College, seeing students over there as well. So, you know, essentially what happened was that I had a student who, during the summer semester, had had some sexual encounters with somebody, uh, another dude that he was messing around with, and they had had sex without a condom. And so he texted me out of the blue during the middle of an afternoon and was basically like, the, the guy just contacted me. He told me that he had syphilis. He got tested for syphilis and his syphilis test was positive and that I needed to get tested. And so immediately when I heard that, I said, well, you know, according to the CDC guidelines, if you have somebody that says, okay, I've just tested positive for syphilis, you have to track back and get their sexual partners for the previous three months. And you not only have to test them, but you have to treat them empirically. And that's just kind of a standard of care with public health to try to get a jump 
on any potential transmission because sometimes it takes about one to two, sometimes even as late as three months later, where someone would test positive for syphilis um, after an exposure. So my immediate reaction was like, well, did you go to our clinic even though the providers aren't there? And then he said, well, you know, the nurses told me they weren't testing until classes started uh, in the fall. And so he got turfed away from that. And then he was at another, he was doing summer school at another local university. And he went to their student health center and he was told that he couldn't just get a syphilis test after he told the story. He had to get all the STI screening. And that even though he had private insurance um, through the school, he needed to actually pay $50 per, per test, per STI test. And then after he was told that, they said, well, we don't know if we can give it to you here, so we're going to refer you to Aid Atlanta, which is a community-based organization and clinic located here in Atlanta that's actually for people living with HIV. And he's actually HIV negative and on pre-exposure prophylaxis. So um, the nurses first told him down at the one school. The second school, it was a physician assistant. They told him he couldn't just get tested for the, you know, the one STI had to be all of them, and then he told him that it was cost prohibitive, and then referred him to an AIDS organization, even though he's HIV negative, and then said, also, you could go to the Department of Health. So this is the point where he called me after he got those two answers and said, you know, what can I do? So I, it was after hours, and I didn't want to refer him to a Department of Health, but I also wanted him to get treatment as soon as he can, because the contact that he had had with this dude that just tested positive for syphilis was from a few weeks ago. So my thought was time was of the essence. He needs to go ahead and, you know, get treatment. And the treatment for penicillin, whether you test positive or whether you're getting treated for being in contact with someone who tested positive, the standard of care is penicillin. Penicillin is by far and away the best medication for it. There's not really much evidence of resistance, and it still works very well. Now, if you're allergic to penicillin, then you have to think of other things, other treatments which aren't as good. But penicillin is the best treatment. This gentleman not only had insurance, but he also was not allergic to penicillin. So I sent him to a local urgent care center, and I said, you know, with your insurance, you'll probably have to pay a $25 copay, but at least they can get you the shot there, and they can do the testing over there. So then he calls me back, and he says, oh, they gave me some pills for two weeks. He gave, they gave him the second-line treatment. Um, it's an antibiotic called doxycycline that you take twice a day for uh, 14 days. And so it ends up being two weeks to take this medication. And the medication has a lot of side effects, like it makes your stomach upset if you don't take it with food, uh, you get nauseous, all this kind of other stuff. Plus, you just have to take it for two weeks instead of just getting one shot and then being done. So I thought it was curious that they were just giving him the second-line treatment automatically. So long story short, we ended up calling back and forth to the urgent care center. And I ended up speaking to somebody and said, well, hey, you know, we have this patient that came in. He's on the phone. We re-waited. And I said, why didn't he get penicillin? He's not allergic to penicillin. He's a contact. And the person said, well, the provider felt that, you know, he could get the doxycycline, the pills, and he could take those for two weeks. And I said, wait a minute, are you the provider? Because the student was under the, the impression that he was speaking to the medical provider. And then the person on the phone said, no, I'm actually the medical assistant. And I said, well, where's the medical provider? Can I speak to them? And that's when the medical assistant said, well, uh, she's doing her notes and she's seeing patients. And I said, well, I'll hold. Can you get her for me? And so she put me on hold and then she came back. She's like, the medical provider can't see you, but she will call in the prescription for the penicillin shot 
um, to <laughs> to the pharmacy. Now, Courtney, I just have to tell you this. Pharmacists don't administer penicillin shots. They're thick shots that have to be administered by a nurse or a physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or a medical doctor. Like, somebody has to do that. Pharmacists don't do that in pharmacies, typically. And so I knew she didn't know what she was talking about. And I was just kind of rushing to get me off the phone because it was near closing time on a Friday night. So I said, okay. And by this point, the student's getting frustrated, right? He's getting it's not like he's been to three different places and he's getting this runaround. He was at the point where he actually asked me, he said, well, doc, can I just take the pills? Why don't you just, can I just take the pills and just stop all this? And then my attitude at that point was like, no, this is the principle of the matter. They are giving you an inferior treatment that involves you taking a pill twice a day for two weeks when they know they could give you a shot. Um, the next morning, so he got some blood tests at the urgent care center. They sent him home. The next morning he called me and said, oh, they called me and told me the test was negative for syphilis, which doesn't really mean anything. Um, you're still going to treat him. And then she, she was apologizing to him, but then she said, I still stick by my, um, my plan to give you the oral antibiotics. And so at that point, I called a friend of mine who works with the Georgia State Department of Health. And I'm sorry, the first night when he went through all this was a Thursday. So the next day was a Friday. So she worked with the Department of Health, and she actually calls herself the syphilis queen because she's very good at getting everyone navigated in the state of Georgia on syphilis, and she's very pos positive and passionate about getting things done. And so she said, well, give me his number. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, is it okay if I give you this woman's number? She'll be able to get you to the right place. So she, he said, no problem. I just want to get this taken care of. So he, he calls her, she calls him, they get into contact. She refers him to one of the local departments of health on a Friday. Um, the first one he goes to basically says, well, we don't have any providers here who can administer the shot, so you're going to have to come back on Monday. So then he has to go to another Department of Health after that, and then they have a provider. And my contact over the Georgia State Department of Health, she was absolutely wonderful. She got him lined up there, and then he texted me back maybe an hour or so later, and he said, you know, Doc, I just wanted to give you an update. Thanks to you and the, the woman that, you know, you got me in touch with. She was really helpful with getting me set up. I got the shot. I'm good. They did some blood tests, make sure everything was okay. He said, but the only bad thing, everyone was nice, but the provider started shaming me on my sexual behavior and what I was doing and saying that I needed to, and started lecturing him and basically admonishing him about, you know, what he needs to do so that he's not in this position at some point later on. So the end of the story was that this kid went to one, two, three, four, five different places in the span of two days. Finally got the treatment that he should have gotten in the first place, but then got a, dope, a dosing of judgment and kind of stigma on top of that. So it kind of soured him to the whole experience altogether. And even if he felt thankful that I was helping him navigate it and that my friend with the Department of Health was helping him navigate it, it was just a horrible experience for him overall. The good thing that happened out of all of it, he did get the treatment. And then also when they did screening, they screened him for gonorrhea, chlamydia. They did the, the standard triple site testing where they do your mouth, your ass, your, um, your urine test. And one of them came back positive for chlamydia. So he ended up getting treated for that as well. <clears throat> and so it just goes to show you, like, if you look at the line, and I was telling the story, every different type of medical staffer was involved here. When I wrote the story on Facebook, when I typed the story up on Facebook, 
and told about the physician assistant. I also told about the nurses, the doctors. Um, someone who was a physician assistant got very defensive and said, well, all physician assistants aren't like that. You know, it's not a generalization. You can't make this generalization about physician assistants. And I said, you're missing the point. I said, also, if you look at the story, the first place he went to, the nurses told him he couldn't get tested there. So it was a nurse. The second place, it was the physician assistant. The third place, it was a nurse practitioner and a medical assistant who kind of termed him. The fourth place, they didn't have a provider, the first department of health he went to. And then the fifth place, it was a physician. So I don't discriminate when I'm critiquing people in medical professions. We all fucked it up. So when I look at it, it was every person, every point contact you could have across the, the continuum of who you're going to see in a medical setting, we all messed it up. And so there's no need to get defensive about stuff. There's improvement that all of us need to make. Like that staff provider, that physician at the end of the day that got him the treatment should have had a little bit more reassurance and maybe a positive sexual health conversation than just telling him you need to stop, da 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 da, or else you're not gonna, you know, you're gonna be in this position. And so the story on a whole just kind of speaks to it's not only if people can get through the insurance loopholes, the cost, the access to care. Like, people think that's the end of it. Like, you build a building, you put a building up to treat people for medical stuff and STIs and stuff, they'll come. But if you staff one of those facilities with some fucked up, judgmental, narrow-minded people, guess what? You can have all the treatment, best treatment in the world. Nobody's going to come. So it just, it was a story that kind of reinforced to me. I've been on a kick for about four or five years now about how the main problem isn't kind of cost and access all the time. It's basically the, the quality of the medical staff. And I will continue on that soapbox because these stories happen all the time. With syphilis, this is something that, if untreated, can get much worse. Yes. So syphilis, uh, when it first comes, is, a, is an initial stage. And I'm also very clear, like with this gentleman, he didn't have a positive test for syphilis himself. And he wasn't diagnosed with syphilis himself but he was a contact of someone who had tested positive for syphilis. Syphilis has three stages. So there's usually a first stage where you get a lesion on your genitals somewhere and it's painless and it usually goes away. And that's, that happens usually two to six weeks after you get exposed. If you don't treat it then, maybe about three months, four months down the road, you get a flu-like illness, which is secondary syphilis. Now, if you don't get it treated then, uh, eventually it can progress where it gets to a point where you have syphilis that can get involved into the brain or tertiary syphilis where it can, the third stage of syphilis where it actually can affect the heart as well. So it can become something, and I've seen patients at hospitals where they were like 70 years old and they were, they had dementia and syphilis can cause dementia. And so one of the things we forget to ask our elders when they come into hospitals with dementia is, have you ever been diagnosed with syphilis? Have you been treated? And if they have, or if, you know, their test, blood test is positive, you need to do a spinal tap to check to make sure syphilis is not in their brain, because that's a reversible cause of dementia that we miss a lot of times. So it's very important, not only from a public health perspective, to treat people who test positive, but to also be on top of it about contacts. And that's why I wouldn't kind of let this whole thing go with the student. And I wanted to teach him that you kind of also need to fight. He's a young man. He's 20, 21 years old that you need to keep fighting and it's not okay. And even if at a certain point you want to stop and say, well, let me just take the treatment. The general principle of the matter is that you can't do that because these people need to be doing their jobs and they need to be doing their jobs the right way and not basing it on 
know, oh, it's late in the day, or oh, I don't feel like doing this, or oh, it's easier for me to treat him this way. It's just horrible all around. Yeah. Now, this young man was given the second round of syphilis medication. I would think that the second round would be the stronger version or something uh, to treat syphilis when it's gotten more serious. So for what reason was it not okay for them to have given him the second round other than the fact that the penicillin is a shot and it should have alleviated the symptoms? Yeah, there's also studies that show that um, the medication doxycycline isn't as effective in eradicating syphilis as penicillin is. So if you have like you have recommendations and guidelines about treatment for various medical conditions, and whether it be HIV, STIs, or other medication or other medical conditions, you have like the first line of therapy, like the top therapy that we know works the best against the condition. The only way, the only reason to go against that top therapy is if there's something about the patient, either they're allergic or they've had some kind of reaction or it didn't work before, there was some kind of resistance. And in his case, there was none of those things. He's a young guy. He's not allergic to penicillin. This is the first-line therapy that you would use. Why would you go to something that doesn't work as well, that is actually potentially more toxic and more side effects, and then he has to take twice a day for two weeks as opposed to a single shot? It doesn't make sense. Okay. And so people could justify it, but at the end of the day, like I suspect... Um, it may have been two reasons, one for convenience, the other thing could have been um, cost, because obviously penicillin in this day and age is costing a little bit more now, and doxycycline, when there was a shortage a year or two ago, became very expensive, but now it's back to being cheap again. So you could get two weeks of doxycycline probably for about $10, $15. If the penicillin shot was more expensive, then providers and medical systems will choose the less expensive one, even if it's not as good. So again, there's just a lot of, you know, messed up, fucked up shit going on with them that it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. So this was someone who has health insurance. They knew where to go. They knew what to do, at least in the beginning. And a lot of times, like that's how I would look at it. I do my due diligence in the beginning. I'm supposed right. to just show up, tell you what's wrong, and you treat me. That's right. what I'm expecting. Yeah, and he's on PrEP, so he's on pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. So the people that usually are on PrEP are usually pretty aggressive and assertive with their sexual health. And so that's something that they know about, they've discussed with medical providers. And he had insurance, too. He's a smart kid, he's a college student, he's motivated. And I gave him a lot of credit for kind of sticking with it and going with it, but I think he was also scared because he he knew that he had had sex without a condom with this dude a few times before and he was like look I whatever I need to do to get this treatment I will and so I think we kind of worked together and I think we saw eye to eye on that I think uh, you know obviously everyone's human so at a certain point you can get frustrated with those things and with the processes and like I said he did get fatigued at one point it was like well, why don't I just take the medication and I was like you could do that but you know it, it lets people off the hook. It lets the medical profession off the hook. Then if you don't call people on this shit, that's enabling behavior. And so you know when a, when a kid or even an adult for that matter kind of acts poorly. <laughs> and and you could go to certain lengths to talk about people that do that. People act poorly because folks allow them to get away with it. And so they continue to exhibit that behavior even if it's at the detriment of other people or even if it's related to a customer service or, God forbid, in the healthcare profession where 
no one's called them on it. So you have to call them on it. And to the kids' credit, I don't know if I told you this when we spoke before, but um, I ended up telling uh, my my friend who worked, a colleague who worked over the State Department of Health, she got in touch with one of the head doctors who runs over a lot of the state health departments. And he ended up getting in touch with the student, and the student told him the story and reported the doctor. They kind of shamed him afterwards. And so at the end of the day, like, but that takes a lot for a student. But I do think this generation that's coming up, the Generation Z after the millennials, they are a little bit more assertive, and they know they speak up, and they're not as intimidated by power structures as previous generations have been. And so I think that's encouraging because they won't take things lying down because they know it's not just like, oh, it's just the doctor. Like baby boomers nowadays, they're mostly like, well, the doctor says it's right. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And no, that's not okay. Like you can't always, yes, the doctor's the expert, but if the doctor's doing something wrong or not doing their job or cutting corners or just trying to save money and not thinking about what's going to be the most effective treatment, it's, we have to be empowered to fight that. That's what we have to do. So that's one of the things that I wanted to teach him to do. And I'm glad he spoke with one of the head doctors at the departments of health because that way they knew who the doctor was that kind of shamed him while giving him the treatment and they went back to him and kind of talked to him about that because this is something that creates additional barriers for medical professionals because now patients don't want to tell them things that are vital to their health. I remember I went and got tested at, uh, we have a St. Louis effort for AIDS here and I went in there and interviewed them and I got tested and my test, um, the person who performed the test on me asked me several questions in a non-judging way at all, asked um, about my pronouns, if I had sex with sex workers, if I had sex with men or trans men or women, they asked me all these questions and I didn't feel as if this was coming from a place of being judged and I asked you know I was like why did you ask these specific questions and what he said back to me was just that we want to make sure that you know you're we're able to treat you to the best of our ability we want to know whether or not you're a candidate for prep or if uh, you should be considering it and just kind of went down the list of why it was important for me to have that transparency with them so if I don't feel comfortable having that transparency, I'm not able to get the best treatment. And at the same time, if I'm not, I mean, if I'm expecting the best treatment when I come in and like you tell me shame on you because you do this, then I'm going to be hesitant to continue to disclose the things that could potentially save my life, unfortunately. Right. And it's interesting because even this morning, like these kind of things happen every day. It just so happened that that event was was so dramatic in what was happening that I was like, I, I can't let, the, I have to tell this story because it's absolutely crazy. But even I had a, a former student who graduated uh, in May call me today and he had been on prep and he called me saying he wanted to pick up his new prescription and that his insurance had lapsed out. He was at a new job. He didn't know if he had insurance yet. And so I called the pharmacy and I said, well, has he been taking his meds? And they were like, well, doc, he hasn't picked up his prescription for PrEP since you gave him that first prescription in June. And when I spoke to the patient, he said, well, I've been off it for about two weeks. So he kind of, he twisted the truth a little bit. And then I went back to him and I said, dude, I said, what's going on? I said, because they're telling me you haven't picked it up since June. Like, so it's been a little bit longer. And he was like, well, to be honest, doc, you know, I just haven't, you know, picked it up. I've been busy. I haven't had the time. And I just, I just let it lapse. But then he says this, He says, well, I wanted to take it also because I had something happen the other day. And it turns out he 
had a sexual episode that was without a condom with someone that he knew decently, but he doesn't really trust. Um, and he said, and it happened Saturday night. And I said, oh, well, you need post-exposure prophylaxis then. But what he was going to do was he was going to go and get refill his prep and then just start taking the prep again as if that would help him. And so I had to remind him, I said, dude, we've talked before. You know I'm not the judgmental type. I said, so anything that you can tell me, I'll go with. But I don't blame that on him. And I don't blame that on myself because I know my approach is a pretty open one. I blame it on the medical profession because the reason why he's so scared to be honest about these things is because he's probably encountered people in the past who have judged him and made him feel horrible and made him feel uncomfortable. And so he would just stop talking. So turns out I just spoke to the pharmacist because we have a wonderful pharmacy over here, told him, updated him on the situation. He was like, oh, well, I need to call him and get these three bits of information and then we can put a on these meds you want to put them on a four month and i said yeah the thing is too is that i can't get the labs like if you saw me in my clinic the protocols that you have to get initial labs uh, baseline labs for hiv and all that stuff for post-exposure prophylaxis before you start the medication and then they take the medication for four weeks and then you follow up on the labs to make sure they're hiv negative afterwards but i'm not going to wait until he goes to get those labs when he has to propose exposure prophylaxis to actually work, you have to start it within 72 hours of the exposure. So if he was exposed to someone and he's worried about an event that happened Saturday night, he has until Sunday, Monday, Tuesday night. So he has until tomorrow night. So he's about 48 hours now. I'm not going to wait just because I can't get the baseline labs right now. I'm going to start that and opt to protect him from that since he's coming with that problem right now. And then I just told him, I said, look, dude, you know you need to do better. I said, I know this system is messed up, and I know people have dropped the ball with you before. I said, but you need to actually go and get some labs this week at a Department of Health or something. I'll, I'll send you the links for some stuff, and then you need to follow up in a month. Because for me to just prescribe this to you, even though I've seen you before and I know your labs have been fine in the past, it's not the protocol by which we operate. And he kept saying, he would interrupt me before I even said, he was like, I know I need to do better. And he was like, I I know I do. He was like, this part of this is on me. I said, he's like, and Doc, I appreciate you not judging me about this. I said, dude, you don't even know my life. So if you looked at my life, you would be judging me up and down and sideways all over the place. So I'm in no position to judge. I said, but you do need to hold yourself accountable because um, it can't all be the system. You have to take some accountability for your body, your health at some point. So I think it's, we can always give that message, but it depends on the tone and how you say it. Um, you don't need to judge somebody as if you're perfect. And that's what most doctors and medical professionals do, as if we don't make mistakes, if we, as if we don't have sex without condoms, as if we don't, you know, eat fried food and fatty food, as if we don't eat solid. Like, we act like we don't do all this shit, and we do. Doctors are the biggest alcoholics, some of the most unhealthy people you'll see on the face of this planet. And yet we act like our shit doesn't stink, and we're just going to tell people what to do and lecture them, and patients pay attention to that. They were like, well, you're 400 pounds. Why are you telling me to lose weight and you ain't even done your own shit? So to me, you have to kind of humble yourself. And that's where culture of humility comes in. And you realize that I don't know everything, but I'm going to work with you in whatever capacity I can to, to get the best health of you. So is there a specific kind of training that medical professionals can go through or are there any practice um, courses or something that we can do as sexually active people who aren't in a medical profession so that we're aware of red flags to watch out for things that we need to do better in order to advocate best for our own health. Yeah, there is actually, I had to give a sexual health talk to some 
upper grade school and early high school campers in Virginia uh, on Friday. And I was looking at different apps, and there's actually an app called Sex Doc uh, or Sex Doctor that gives a whole lot of questions about different diseases, when to go get checked out, like some really basic questions. And the main one is for people who are over the age of 17, but then there's Sex Doctor Lite, which is for, I think, 12 to 17. So that's a good application. The CDC has great information on STIs and how to inform yourself. There's a website called thebody.com that's really good as well um, with information about HIV and other STIs. Now, for physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, you know, clinicians who are practicing, um, obviously there are professional organizations that will give that training, but then also one of the things that I work with at Morehouse School of Medicine, we work, we collaborate with Vanderbilt University on with a program called the AIDS Education and Training Center. It's AETC. And what we do, it's, it's all, they've got chapters all around the country, but wherever you are in the country, and again, the acronym is AETC, you basically can go to some trainings and look at trainings that we give. And it's usually medical providers that are giving trainings about pre-exposure prophylaxis, HIV 101, STI testing and diagnosis and treatment. And you can do them in a, a variety of different ways. So if you want to sit down and go to a conference or a workshop session, you can do that. But there are also webinars that we give as well, where we can go over slides and you can just call in from the convenience of your office. So in this day and age, there's really no, there's no reason not to get training if you need it and not to get empowerment if you need it, especially with Google. All you have to do is Google shit. Like, you just have to say, like, people say, well, I don't know where to look. Just Google it. Sexually transmitted infection training for medical providers. And some shit will come up, and then you can use it. It's just, it's really simple. But I think when it comes to sex, people have so many religious and personal biases about it, and they have so much judgment. Like, it's not like eating salt, or it's not like the sympathy you get with breast cancer or colon cancer and those kind of things. Sexuality has this whole different tone to it, especially in the United States. And so I think people hide behind things saying, well, I don't know where to get trained, or I don't know where to look, or I don't know what to do to cover up for the fact that they're just not comfortable talking about it. Yeah. Now, going back to like stigma and feeling judgment from your medical provider, uh, this stigma branches out to not only just being judged for contracting an SCI, which is already bad enough to a lot of people, but also to your sexual preference, your lifestyle, whether or not you have multiple partners, if you're polyamorous or whatever the case may be. So with that understanding of how the stigma is, um, and from medical professionals, do you have a way for us to know whether or not our medical providers are queer friendly or polyamory friendly or any anything like that? Is there a way to determine that that we know of? Yeah, not necessarily. Always there's going to be like a trial and error thing. Um, and I remember a long time ago when I was in training in New York City, there was an organization called the Bomb and Gilead which was a religious-based organization that was focused on training pastors around HIV and AIDS. Um, and this was like the late 1990s. And I remember the founder, her name um, was Vanessa Seal, amazing woman. And I sat down and talked with her, and I was like, you know, yeah, I want to do this research study. You know, I was young and, you know, you know, real hyper and excited and stuff. And I was like, yeah, I want to do this study about 
you know, why the church, you know, what the church feels about, you know, homosexuality and different sexual lifestyles and different gender identities. And she looked at me and said, she said, honey, the, the church can't even talk about heterosexuality without judgment and stigma. She was like, you gotta, you gotta crawl before you walk. And so I remember that, but to your point, there's no kind of certification that people get that you can see that someone has some training now. There is an organization called the Gay and Lesbian Medical Organization, or um, Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, GLMA, GLAMA. And so GLAMA on their website, I think it's glma.org, they basically have a list of, like you could put in your zip code, and you could find LGBTQ-friendly providers. Um, I think that's one of the things. We've also had the American Academy of HIV Medicine, AAHIV, they also have a website where they give providers who are competent in HIV care as well as LGBTQ-friendly folks. But it is challenging sometimes, and especially in rural areas in the South, where a lot of these epidemics are centered. Um, people don't know about providers or they can't get access to them because it's too far away. So they're kind of stuck in the situations that they are with people. And so it, outside of Glamour's website, there's not a whole lot that I'm aware of that would help consumers or patients kind of come in and say, how do I know if someone's going to be competent? Sometimes it's just trial and error. And so you literally, but what I will say is that the medical profession is a very conservative profession. So for anyone who's listening or anyone who's a patient and goes into a medical space and you have a sexual problem, understand that if you don't bring it up, the provider more than likely won't ask about it flat out. So if you don't bring it up and the provider's not comfortable, nothing gets done. So the onus is kind of at, on us as patients and consumers to go into these spaces and bring them up to date. And then if you run into a brick wall or if you find somebody who's judging you or doesn't want to act on it or examine you or do anything like that, then you ask for another provider. It's in your rights to do that. Can, I, can you find somebody else who's a little bit more comfortable because you don't seem to be comfortable talking about this. And then some, seriously, you could do that. And then also, it's, it's an opportunity to learn. So I always encourage patients to go in with paperwork. Like, I've had people say, well, I went to my provider to try to get PrEP, and they didn't know what it was. Well, bring some papers or bring it up on your phone and say, well, here, here's the website. This is what you need to do. Because providers will try to shoot it down. But if you come in with information and knowledge, then they're forced to actually do their job. And it's a shame that it has to be like that, unfortunately, but it kind of, it's where it is right now. All right. And yeah, thank you for mentioning the part where you say coming in with our own paperwork and having done our own homework as well, because I think we do fear that you mentioned like, um, this upcoming generation, generation Z being not afraid of power structure. Like they'll challenge that. And that's how we all need to be, especially when it comes to our own health, mm -hmm. our own sexual health. Um, mm -hmm. We have to do what we can to be safer ourselves and keep our partners safer as well. Yeah. So challenge those power structures. So so challenge those power structures and do your homework, do your research. You know your body. Advocate for yourself and don't be intimidated by those power structures. And you know right away as well, you know, if you receive too much pushback or an unwillingness to even look at, um, to, for the doctor to even look at the work that you've put into um, 
making them aware, then maybe it's time for you to start looking elsewhere for a better medical provider. Right. It's And it's hard, too, because a lot of people don't have insurance or may not have options, so they feel like they're stuck. And they also there's always a power dynamic in these medical settings where it's like the medical provider has the power advantage. And so a lot of people feel you're not only sick physically and you feel vulnerable, but also there's this psychological disadvantage that you have to get over to kind of fight for what you want. Um, but I think that's good advice regardless. You really do have to push for your own agenda. We tend to be very, um, we tend to be very aggressive with our cars. So we'll drop a car mechanic in a heartbeat or the dealership and go and find it something else with our cars because it gets us from point A to point B. But with our bodies, we tend to just be like, okay, I'll accept that. That's fine. And that's the way you don't need to be. Like, think of it. Your body is your car. It gets you everywhere. You only have one body. So if you don't advocate for yourself, they won't give a fuck. Like, seriously, if, if the provider can't care more about your health than you do. So it doesn't, you have to get over whether you're going to seem like an asshole or a jerk um, or seem like you're pushy, it's your body. Um, and I guarantee you that if a medical provider was in your position when you come in feeling sick and want to get care, they would be even more pushy than you are now. So never apologize for being pushy for your own health or for family members or the other loved ones. Perfect. Dr. David, that's all I got for you in terms of uh, what I wanted to cover, the questions. Um, we did a great job working through everything. I appreciate your time. Thank you for getting with me and sharing that story as well. Do you have anything else that you want to leave us with before I let you get out of here? No. I know your podcast, you you focus, you tend to focus on non-curable STIs, so like herpes. So it's not the focus. It's what... It's how it started. So I started interviewing people with herpes about their experience, just sharing it with the people who were um, experiencing suicide ideation and people who were just struggling with disclosure and dating and just navigating life after their diagnosis. And then it evolved into HIV. Um, I had a few guests who talked about HPV. And then I noticed that there was a space for therapist who can come on here and help talk about that and medical professionals as well so it's branched out into a lot of that and sexuality sexual um we've got sex educators sexual wellness organizations and now um i've recently had an episode where someone shared their chlamydia story so we're going to look to get more of those uh curable sti stories as well because i just learned about the like super bugs so there's like a super gonorrhea that's not um, you, you're unable to treat it with any of the traditional forms of medicine now. So we're transitioning into including stories about that as well. It's been okay. a challenge to find those just because it's like, oh, crap, I got chlamydia. Let me go and get this taken care of and then right. wash your hands clean with it. Right. Yeah, it happens a lot. So I think that, that's great that you're expanding over that. And like I told you, I think we talked over the phone before, herpes is one of the most difficult ones. And it has, a, it has a lot of stigma because there aren't a lot of concrete answers to it. And there's not a lot of generalizations you can make. Like, everyone's body is different with it. So it becomes particularly frustrating for people. So, And you have to find the right provider to talk about that. And I think a lot of people probably get it wrong, even more so than with, like, syphilis and gonorrhea, chlamydia, and HIV. Even I think herpes is such a nuanced discussion. It's not something you could be like, well, here's your diagnosis. Take these meds and okay, take care, God bless. Yeah. You, know, you can't do that. It's, it, it takes a lot more than that. So 
I'm uh, I'm happy to be on here. And if you, you need me to come on for any of those other STIs or any other discussions in the future, just let me know. I mean, while we're here now, um, we do still have some time left if you're available, because mm-hmm. I would love for us to touch on herpes. So we've recorded. A uh, hundred and I think this will be the hundred and tenth episode of something positive for positive people I've recorded, and a good chunk of people have expressed to me that the person who delivered their diagnosis would give them the news and in some cases say things like just wear condoms, uh, you don't have to disclose herpes is so common, like giving poor advice to a vulnerable person who is looking for a reason to like some kind of a loophole or whatnot. So if I can easily just say, well, my doctor said I don't have to disclose. All I have to do is wear condoms. Then that's an excuse for a person to walk out of there perfectly fine with not disclosing the partners. Yeah, but that's wrong because depending on the state, you can be brought up on charges for herpes. Like even look at Usher and Usher, you know, so and I always tell people, because I remember back in the day there was, there have been tons of stories in the media. The media loves herpes. Um, <laughs> right. In regards to pathologizing like celebrities and sports figures. So like you look at Rihanna and Chris Brown, you look at Michael Vick from back in the day. And what I always try to tell people, and I remember one of the posts I did on Facebook that went crazy viral was around the, um, the Usher thing. And people were jumping on Usher, the bandwagon with Usher immediately. And I had to tell people like, do you guys understand that we don't get any details about the kind of tests they got. I said, so we don't know if Usher was this woman's sexual partner, only sexual partner she ever had in her life, which probably wasn't the case. And then was it a blood test or was it a culture of a lesion or a rash that she had? That's important as well because you can't tell the timing. And it was funny because there were a lot of people who didn't want to get into all those nuances. They just wanted to throw Usher under the bus. Yeah, he probably gave that shit to her because blah, blah, blah. And I said, you have to really look at it. Like, you can't pin it down. Even with Michael Vick, they did the same thing. Well, my blood test came back positive for herpes, and I had sex with Michael Vick. And I was like, well, even if Michael Vick tested positive for herpes, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's the one that gave it to you. You could have had it before or you could have gave it to him. And so you don't know the timing of it. So it... I think when medical providers see it, they just kind of, if they have like 10 minutes or five minutes, they just kind of rush people through it. And they don't explain how complicated it is and how difficult it is for people to have those sexual health conversations with their partners. Like, I remember I dated a brother a long time ago who stopped me before we ended up messing around. And he told me, look, he said, "Um, I got to tell you something. Like, I have herpes type 2. And I don't have a breakout now. I'm on medication. I just wanted to give you a heads up. And, man, I had to be honest with him. I said, dude, that actually turned me on that you were so, like, upfront about that. Like, I thought it was cool because herpes is one of those things that people can just walk out of the doctor's office and say, well, I'm not going to tell anybody. And so I had to give him so much respect. And that made me actually want to be with him more because he was so clear about that. Um, And we ended up not staying together for other reasons, you know, other reasons that are more complicated than that. But I, I think those conversations can happen, and it also helps to destigmatize things. And obviously it helped that I'm a medical provider and I understand these things with, with herpes, so I would probably feel more comfortable than just your general person that doesn't have medical expertise. But I think those are the kind of conversations that can be had, and hopefully over time we'll destigmatize it. Yeah, the more of those conversations we're willing to have, I mean, the more 
people we're putting out there who now know somebody who has herpes. I mean, we all right. do. We all know someone who has herpes. Right. We just may not know it, and that's as a result of stigma. And right. <laughs> we will we'll get there. We'll get there through things like this, through people like Dr. David coming on and sharing their experiences and their insights. And I can't thank you enough for talking about how much respect you gave to that man for disclosing to you because people just overlook that all together of a person being receptive to it and just getting that positive feedback of like being able to present your status to someone confidently with knowledge of how you take care of your body and how you can keep your partner safe that helps with the disclosure so thank you for sharing that with us as well um that's it that's all i got Sounds good to me. All right. This concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I can be found at spfpp.org and on social media at H on My Chest. If you haven't already, please like, rate, review, subscribe to, and share this podcast. It does way more than you can ever think. And now that we're a 501c3 nonprofit, uh, the views, the, the, the numbers look really really good to advertisers so these are potential donors who can help us support people in getting therapy after their diagnosis and connecting people to the support resources that they need to help navigate their diagnosis till next time stay sex positive